The People's Constitution, the path to empowerment of Australians in a 21st century democracy by Bronwyn Kelly. Read by Bronwyn Kelly. Chapter 7, Essential Number 3, A Process for Expression of the Australian People's National Voice. Part 1. If Australians take up the opportunity to enshrine human rights and obligations in their constitution in the manner suggested in Chapter 6, they will at last have safely secured their right to vote. But as I have said, a vote is not a voice. In our current arrangement of democracy, where we hand over power in elections without instructions, we lose our voice as soon as we have voted. Some of us continue to speak, protest and even scream about what we want and need, but the combined voices, by their disarray, create so much noisy dissonance and babble that politicians find it quite easy to pick and choose which demands they will listen to and which ones they will simply ignore, no matter how legitimate they might be. In that process, democracy is reduced to a process of divide and conquer. Nothing secures the power of a government as much as our disorganised babble. Conservative governments are particularly adept at taking advantage of this disorganisation. But it is a matter of convenience for both progressive and conservative governments that the constant adversarial discourse that arises daily from the babble acts as a very effective means by which they can attain and keep power. All political parties of government, those that, with all their might, work to ensure that the arrangement of parliamentary democracy is confined to a two-party system of government versus opposition, rely and thrive on this adversarial arrangement of parliamentary government. They are aided and abetted in this divisiveness by unethical news media and by the consequent complete disarray of the general populace. The two-party system and the adversarialism it thrives on both work to exclude minor political parties and independents from a reasonably proportional power share. We might think that because the Australian election system involves proportional representation in the Senate and preferential voting in the House of Representatives, that the election system will guard us against disproportionate exertions of power in the Parliament. And sometimes it does, to some extent, if the votes happen to fall in a lucky way that favours the more ethical, socially inclusive candidates. But generally, once the votes are cast, the whole process of the Parliament is captured by the two major political parties. And even if they are required to make compromises with minor parties and independents, These compromises tend to support powerful sectional interests more than the national interest, and certainly more than the interests of powerless minorities. This mode of democracy is essentially an arrangement where the agendas of the already powerful are the only ones that are served. Every other reform that would serve the legitimate interests of the less powerful is pushed off the table or takes decades longer than it should. And if the prevailing agendas of the powerful do not happen to align with the national interests, then the result is predictably disastrous. In that case, peaceful progress for the majority grinds to a halt 
or is slowed so much that advances are overwhelmed by regressive forces. Nowhere has this been displayed more graphically than in relation to climate change, where for the period between 2006 and 2022, a majority of Australians, averaging 52% in the Lowy Institute poll, clearly stated that global warming is a serious and pressing problem and we should begin taking steps now, even if this involves significant costs. And another 35% on average thought that the problem of global warming should be addressed, but its effects will be gradual, so we can deal with the problem gradually by taking steps that are low in cost. And yet, government policies throughout that period catered overwhelmingly to the views of the 12% who thought that until we are sure that global warming is really a problem, we should not take any steps that would have economic cost. The result has been that Australia has contributed significantly to the problem of global heating and in 2022 is really no closer to meeting a target of net zero emissions than it was at the start of the century. At the rate Australia's greenhouse gas emissions are dropping, we will be lucky to reach net zero by the end of the century, let alone before the world locks in planetary heating of more than 1.5 degrees Celsius, which at present rates of global emissions is likely to be by around 2025. Nor have we realised the economic opportunities that could have come our way if we had accelerated our progress towards 100% renewable energy. This utter inefficiency in the systems that should support national progress happens because the electoral system of our parliamentary democracy is designed to ensure that once the people have voted, their voices count for nothing. As soon as seats have been taken in the arena created by this system, the arena itself locks the doors on the powerless and becomes a space in which the short-term agendas of powerful sectional interests will be the only things considered. This is inevitable because it is the essential nature of a political party that it shall ensure its survival by doing nothing more and nothing less than what is necessary to get elected next time and everything necessary to squeeze out agendas extraneous to that purpose. The survival of the political party becomes the primary purpose of the democracy, and if this survival requires legitimate minority interest and even the national interest to be sidelined, so be it. Minority political parties and independents inevitably get swept up into this same cycle of doing what is necessary to survive. They find themselves making concessions and compromises on their agendas in order to achieve at least some small degree of progress. In this process, they hope to prevent being sidelined even further at the next election. The result is that everyone's agendas are compromised. This compromise is what politics is about, of course, but there are far too many occasions when the compromises amount to outright perversion of legitimate agendas, full sacrifice of the national interest and subordination of it to sectional interests. Having worked closely with all manner of politicians for 30 years, I can vouch safe that there are times in the career of a politician, at least the decent ones, where these concessions and compromises will cause them pangs 
or even deep crises of conscience. In a system which is built on exclusive rather than shared power, all who hold it and wish to keep it will at some time find themselves corrupting their own moral precepts or community commitments. As former Prime Minister Gough Whitlam once said, only the impotent are pure. The pragmatism that is required in politics means that any politician with the capacity for ethics and self-insight will at some point in their occupation of a seat in Parliament find themselves in a deep quandary as a result of the horse trading that goes on in debates on bills. Such horse trading will frequently require them to sell out one part of their agenda to obtain another part, and very often they will gain less for their constituency than they give up. Over a long career, many politicians will sacrifice more than they gain. In that process, at the federal level, the most frequent casualty is the national interest. The national interest is easily subordinated in any parliamentary system that is organised to give priority to the short-term re-election agendas of its members. It is easily subordinated because there is no agenda which stipulates what the national interest actually is. Australians themselves are never asked about their preferred agenda by politicians, yet logically they are the only ones who can define it, and define it they must if they are to stop its incessant subordination to sectional interest. No space has been created by our political leaders at the national level where the people of the nation can work together to define the national interest. In part, this may be because the whole enterprise of defining the national interest seems too complex. And certainly, it will appear that way to politicians who, mired as they are in the day-to-day -day demands of those with competing interests, must always be reacting to immediate problems and demands by pasting short-term fixes piecemeal onto the issues that pop up, like an insane game of whack-a-mole from which they can never escape. This piecemeal reactive approach consigns everyone to inefficient paths to progress. Everyone's eye is taken off what they might prefer to achieve over the longer term for the nation as a whole, and everyone is repeatedly dragged back into confining their gaze to the short term. In the sweep of history, because living standards have improved since the Industrial Revolution and more people have been lifted out of poverty than ever before, it will appear that this system, the system of electing people to a national parliament without instructions and without specifying the ultimate purpose of their election, is not too much of a problem. But further consideration would suggest that if living standards have improved for Australians, that is more likely to be due to luck and the hard work of Australians. It is unlikely to be due in the main to their political arrangements. And in any case, there is ample evidence available in the 2020s that attests to a distinct decline in living standards in Australia in the 21st century. In 2022, Australian Community Futures Planning released its second report on the state of Australia to coincide with the end of the term of office of the 46th Parliament of Australia. 
the State of Australia 2022 examined over 260 indicators of the health of Australia's society, environment, economy and democracy and found that policies promoted by federal parliaments and governments since 2000 had not resulted in an improved quality of life. On the contrary, the evidence abounds that our economy had been adversely impacted by government pursuit of neoliberal policies, inequality, particularly wealth inequality, had steadily increased, millions of Australians had been consigned to deep poverty and unnecessarily extended periods of unemployment and underemployment, Inaction on gender inequality had stopped women and gender-diverse people from participating in their economy as fully as they might and had confined many to situations of domestic abuse. There were large-scale attacks on our public education system which set the country onto a path of decline for the economy and in productivity. Corruption in government had exploded and the state was subject to capture by corporations. Foreign policy had turned pugnacious and we were ill-prepared in defence of the nation. A secret state had been entrenched, which had seriously reduced the freedoms and rights of Australians. The natural environment and biodiversity had been decimated and climate change was seriously impacting the lives and livelihoods of Australians. This is just a sample of the ways in which the decline of Australia had been manifest between 2000 and 2022. In some respects, Australians may hope that the decline will be arrested by their election of a Labor government in 2022, for example, in some aspects of corruption in the federal government. But in general, the trends of decline are likely to persist inasmuch as the new government did not seek election on a policy platform that would confidently address problems in social cohesion, poverty, the economy, the natural environment, the secret state, corporate capture, and most of all, climate change. This suggests that, at least as far as the capacity of the political system goes, Australia's long run of luck has turned and there is no guarantee that either the political system or our putative luck will prove as useful to future generations as they might have in the past. There is certainly no guarantee that mere luck will be enough to overcome the obvious deficiencies in a political system which gives its people no voice and takes no notice of their concerns for the longer term. That being so, it is at the very least advisable to develop new political systems and a process which can enable Australians to ensure they can express with a coherent voice their aspirations for their well-being and security in the future. It may be expected that the proposed Indigenous voice may serve as a possible model for a wider reform of Australia's political system that will help all Australians speak with a coherent voice to their parliaments and governments. But while models for the Indigenous voice that have been developed through co-design to date are likely to improve the prospects for Indigenous wellbeing and security, they are not likely to be as effective if applied on the scale necessary to achieve a fully inclusive Australian society capable of more active and efficient participation in democracy. Something needs to be added to the type of institutional reform that might arise from the Indigenous voice. That something is a process reform rather than an institutional reform. And it is 
this process reform that needs to be enshrined in Australia's constitution if we the people are to be able to issue the instructions our parliaments and governments will need if Australia is to track towards a future of well-being and security for all. In the next section, I will begin to outline this process reform. Chapter 7, Part 2. What is a national people's voice? In Chapter 2, I spoke of the need to design a new democratic public square, an open space in which the people of Australia can organise their voice, the voice of the whole nation. This will be an enabling instrument by which we can express not just what we value and stand for now, but what we aspire to for the future and what we want to become as a nation on the way to that particular future. It is a voice we can use to describe everything we might aspire to for the type of society, environment, economy and democracy we want to live in and belong to. In this sort of voice, we are continually defining our national project, the comprehensive integrated project for our well-being and security across generations. We are expressing our sovereign people's will as to our future. We are describing the purpose of our coming together and staying together as the people of a new Commonwealth of Australia. This type of voice is an essential component of a people's constitution for that new Commonwealth. In fact, we will gain relatively little from a people's constitution if it does not include a capacity for us to assemble this voice. If we go to the trouble of building a people's constitution at all, we will want to be able to use it for all it is worth. The type of voice that I am proposing can enable that. It can enable Australians to efficiently play a fully meaningful and effective role in their democracy. It is also the positive part of the double power I spoke of in chapters 1 and 4, the part by which the people can empower themselves to set the agenda for their future. It is the part that can enable them to establish the specifics of their will as to the future well-being and security they intend to create. I'm going to call this voice a national voice or a national people's voice. But to prevent confusion, I need to distinguish this at the outset from a national Indigenous voice. For brevity's sake, I will simply say here that when I speak of a national people's voice, I am speaking of a process for assembling that voice. It is not intended that this process would exclude or in any way act against the institution of a national Indigenous voice or the interests of First Nations as they may express them through that institution. On the contrary, I'm working on the assumption that First Nations must be given full rights to design both the institution of the National Indigenous Voice and any processes they feel are appropriate to assemble their national voice, particularly taking into account cultural preferences about how their member nations and communities within those nations engage with each other. I am taking it as a valid given that if they can't do that, then it's not their voice. In turn, I intend that this should logically imply that a national people's voice must not be designed to exclude the possibility for First Nations to achieve self-determination, 
including by being able to design the National Indigenous Voice in whatever form they deem fit. Thus, at the outset, it should be understood that my intention here is to ensure that these two voices should not be designed so that they are mutually exclusive. On the contrary, the two need to be designed to coexist, and ideally, the Constitution should create the most stable platform for that coexistence. Otherwise, we cannot ensure that First Nations and the entire nation can coexist harmoniously, each with full rights of self-determination, a right we might hope all Australians will have if we succeed in the constitutional reform proposed in Chapter 6 of a National Agreement on Human Rights and Obligations. I will enlarge on the importance of achieving a coexistence of these two voices later in this chapter. Obviously, it is central to the question of how to achieve and recognise a coexistence of sovereignties. Returning to the topic of a national people's voice, though, I need to set out what I mean by the term. A national people's voice is not something that the people of Australia have organised themselves to produce before, and they have not settled on what it will look like in form or content once it is assembled. The form that it might take is likely to be as mysterious to them as the form an Indigenous voice might take. But if the whole project of creating a people's constitution is to be worthwhile at all, this is a voice we must learn to assemble, probably from school age. If we assemble it well, by an inclusive process, we can make the task of building national prosperity so much easier, particularly for the politicians that we charge with responsibility for delivery of that project. So what sort of national voice am I talking about? As I have said in Chapter 2, the voice we are trying to make space for in this new people's constitution is essentially pluralist and yet integrated, the many in the one. It is the voice that must be introduced when we shift away from a Hobbesian model of state sovereignty, where the one presides over the many, and take up a more powerful, well-organised, expressive position in the body politic. It is polyphonic not monotonal, harmonic, not unison. It assumes that we don't all need to, and indeed we will not, sing exactly the same tune. And we certainly don't need to wait until the whole nation sings the same tune on an issue before we take action to deal with a new challenge such as climate change. Instead, it assumes that we the people simply need to integrate our voices so that Despite their being different, they harmonise and enhance each other. The objective is to ensure that those of us who may wish governments to start doing something about, say, climate change, can increase the chance of speeding up necessary reforms. We can get started earlier on reforms that appear on the horizon as a necessity for future security. Or we can make up for lost time and reduce the burden of climate change on future generations. But we can do this in a framework that does not eclipse the concerns of those who will be negatively impacted by the reforms. If we can assemble this polyphonic voice, and if we can set that in place alongside an agreed statement of our values as Australians, an agreement on our human rights and obligations, and a national Indigenous voice, 
This will enable Australians to establish essential and quite comprehensive instructions about the national project for those they elect to power. Inasmuch as it will define the long-term national interest, it will establish clear terms of trust on which power is being handed over in an election. It will outline what power is for and provide guidance on what the elected may and may not do with it. It will enable the people of Australia to inject themselves into their own constitution so that they strengthen their democracy and add hitherto unimagined value to their ongoing national project. As I have observed, this should be a liberation for politicians. With an assembled national voice, politicians will acquire something they do not have now, an understanding of the preferred destination of the nation, the destination preferred by its peoples. They will also have something solid that they can fall back on and refer to when they need help to resist the sectional interest claims from lobbyists and corporations. But probably the most significant benefit of a national people's voice is that it can enable all Australians, politicians included, to rise above politics and set the agenda for the nation's future collaboratively and in such a way as to provide assurance to everyone that there will be a place for them in that future. It is essentially to build a nation to which everyone, no matter how different, can feel they belong. This is a voice arcing towards the highest level of inclusion possible, and in that it is establishing a full democracy. In that vein, it is very unlikely to be favoured by those who prefer exclusive power arrangements and the adversarial models of politics which operate daily to perpetuate disagreement, especially about whether we should favour the short-term policies of the Conservatives or the short-term policies of the Progressives. However, a high level of inclusion in democracy is not at all impossible. On the contrary, research has shown that despite the divisive successes of the adversarial models of exclusionists, there is still one place of policy advocacy where we are not easily driven to disagreement and where, by contrast, we exhibit a capacity for a very high level of agreement. Despite our apparent diversity, we all agree on what we want for our kids, for our nieces, nephews, grandchildren and anyone we love who has been born or will live on after us. We all want the same things for their future, the same things for their well-being and security. In imagining that place, the future, and imagining it as we would prefer it to be for ourselves and future generations, we exhibit an extraordinary capacity to discard disagreements about what we should do in the short term in favour of what makes sense to all of us for the longer term. As the community-based research collective Australia Remade observed when, in 2017, they conducted major community engagement through a project group called A24, which asked Australians to imagine the Australia of their dreams, quote, Listening to hundreds of people from many walks of life, we came away understanding that the hopes and dreams we share for our future are staggeringly similar, unquote. Australians are seldom asked about 
what we want for the long term. But when we are given space to consider it, disagreement about what we want fades and divergent desires begin to converge into a vision for the future that is comparatively calm, demonstrably rational and remarkably uniform. It is life-affirming. And because this future is the only thing we agree on, the national voice must be framed in the form of a plan for that future. A long-term, integrated plan is the only useful way of organising that national voice, and if we can efficiently establish it, we can achieve a social contract with those whose future we wish to secure, even if they have not yet been born, and with the politicians we elect to help us usher in that future. In short, a national people's voice is the process by which Australians can collaborate to build an integrated plan to secure the future of their society, environment, economy and democracy, or to put it less bureaucratically. It is a process by which Australians can build a plan to secure the future of those they each love. As Havis Labs found in its study of Australian national values in 2022, quote, we're lovers, not fighters, unquote. As surely as humans start to think about those they love, they will stop fighting about the short-term worries and start to think of the future. And this will provide an impetus to build plans for their safety, security and well-being. We do it every day as families, but as yet, we do not build these plans as nations. And to the extent that we fail in that national level of planning, we will strip away the chances that those we love will thrive. In that sense, a national people's voice is nothing more than a planning process that builds on the natural inclination of humans to love someone else and to increase the chance of bequeathing to them a decent and sustainable future. The plan which arises from that process of exercising our voices in the cause of those we love will constitute the national project. Alongside the Statement of Australian Values proposed in Chapter 5, it will form an important part of the instructions that can be issued to governments on the primary purpose of the nation. The two together can form clear and understandable terms of trust on which power is handed over to parliaments and governments. The Statement of Australian Values will provide those we elect with a clear expression of the values that, in the here and now, underpin our preferred national character. And the plan will add another dimension to that, a picture of our aspirations for the future. In the plan, the terms of trust are articulated in a form whereby we express our vision for our preferred destination as a nation and specify what we want our nation to become along the way. Australians have never developed this sort of plan, at least not at the national level. But the Constitution can be altered to make an open public space for them to do that. In the next section, I will set out how this can be done. There are models available for it, which have been working well in local governance for more than a decade.